and good evening, you wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of full-on geeky stuff for your listening pleasure. It's another deep dive kind of thing this week. Last week, we were very much into kind of engineering, kind of space science, uh, you know, the, the Challenger disaster, the Columbia disaster. We are diving into comics, specifically a slightly thorny area of comics that gets some people a little bit hot under the collar and makes them start mutter about things being woke and politically correct. Uh, or unbelievably offensive. That happens too. And um, that is the issue of sexuality in comics. And to quote the brilliant Dr. Kate Lister on a podcast I might plug at a later time, this is your fair dues warning. Uh, this is a family show and we will not be going into anything graphic or detailed about sex or sexuality. However, we will be discussing those issues and uh, we will certainly be talking about non-heteronormative relationships in this show. So, you know, fair dues, we told you. If that's an issue for you, then you might want to go and make a very long of tea. Still with us. Brilliant. Marvellous. Okay, so why, first of all? Well, it's um, LGBT History Month here in the UK and coinciding with, and I think it actually is genuinely a coincidence because it's not LGBTQ History Month in the US as far as I know. Uh, and so American comics, which is mostly what we're talking about here, probably aren't actually being timed for this kind of thing happening in the UK there are some comics on the stand that are exploring this issue and there have been increasingly a comics on the stands exploring these kinds of issues because of course this is something that people are talking about much more than they used to which means we're going to start with Alan Scott now you might not know who Alan Scott is because he was the first Green Lantern, and to be fair, you might not know who the Green Lanterns are either. So, bit of a comics history lesson before we get started. Alan Scott was the first Green Lantern. Who the later Green Lanterns were, we'll get to. His full name is Alan Wellington Scott, uh, and he first appeared in All American Comics issue 16, which was published on July the 10th, 1940. He was created by the writer Martin Nadell and the artist Bill Finger, who you may remember from being the co-creator of Batman. And, you know, this is 1940. It's still pre-war if you're American. And it is part of that first superhero craze that was kicked off not that long before by Superman. So Alan Scott comes into being because Nadell well, presumably because he's looking to create a superhero to, to like jump on this bandwagon, um, was looking at characters from Greek, Norse and Middle Eastern mythology. Uh, stuff like Aladdin and, and Thor and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and he wanted to create a character who fought evil with the aid of a magic ring. I mean, you've got your Aladdin influence there. Um, and this magic ring would give him powers. Essentially, something that's still true of the modern Green Lantern character, although it's not magic particularly anymore. It might as well be. Now, the character became 
very popular very quickly. I, I get this is part of the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah, the 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 superhero was really taking off, if you'll pardon the pun. And so, you know, everybody wanted superhero stories. Um, so he graduated from All American Comics, where he was just one of many stories, to his own comic book, imaginatively entitled Green Lantern. This is around the same time, 1940, that DC is beginning to start to put together crossovers and teams of the characters that they published. And a shared universe of characters that we now know as the DC universe was beginning to form. It was kind of nebulous at this moment, but it was starting. And because he was one of the most popular heroes they had at the time, Alan Scott became a founder member of the Justice Society of America, which was both fictionally and actually the forerunner of the Justice League of America, which is probably better known now. So after World War II, the superhero craze started to die down and the character's popularity began to fade. Um, the golden age of comic books was, was, was ending. And like so many other characters, Green Lantern was cancelled back in 1951. Eight years later, the concept of, of the Green Lantern was revived with a different hero called Hal Jordan as a more science fiction character. Like Alan Scott, Hal Jordan's powers came from a ring, his Green Lantern ring, which was charged in an actual Green Lantern. But Hal Jordan as Green Lantern was not getting his powers from a magic ring. Hal Johnson, Jordan's ring was powered by some kind of cosmic energy, and he was part of the Green Lantern Corps, which is a kind of galactic police force. That is still very much what the Green Lanterns are today, although there are now many characters who have borne the title Green Lantern as yeah, the, the years have progressed and the stories have developed. And it might have been that Alan Scott would have been forgotten altogether, except that DC Comics just historically, it's part of their DNA as a company, cannot leave ideas alone. And so for a while, they played with this idea that there was our Earth and then there was Earth 2, where things were a bit different. And Alan Scott was revived as the Earth 2 Green Lantern. They did a whole load of stuff over many decades to, that messed about with DC's continuity in ways that I'm simply not going to even attempt to explain here, because it all gets way more complicated than interesting. What you need to know now is that the Alan Scott Green Lantern and all the subsequent Green Lanterns all exist in the same universe. Alan Scott is very much an elder statesman. He's a hero, canonically now, from the 40s, who is an inspiration to the modern heroes. Uh, they've explained that he was supposed to be an actual Green Lantern of the Green Lantern Corps, but something went wrong when he was recruited and he didn't get the information right. So he thought the ring was magic, but it wasn't. And he didn't know what the Green Lantern Corps was. He was working just with sort of basic scraps of information that had got into his consciousness and doing the best he could to interpret it. Um, and so he came up with the Green Lantern that he was. And he's a great character and a character with some backstory. Uh, he's been married twice to women. Uh, he 
has kids that he was not involved with until he was much older and his kids were grown up. And that's been part of the character's backstory for a long time. Um, what created some controversy was that a while ago, Alice Scott, as a character, came out as gay. And it will surprise absolutely nobody that there were howls of protest from certain quarters of fandom. There were some much more measured, much quieter objections. Uh, the comics podcaster John Suntries, who I've mentioned before, he presents the excellent Word Balloon podcast, which if you have any interest in comics at all, I can only recommend. Um, he's you know, on record uh, talking to people who make this comic, uh, kind of saying, you know, initially his reaction was, oh, what do you got to do that for? You know, and, you know, John Suntris, you know, we'll say, look, you know, he, he describes himself as a knuckle dragging Neanderthal. Uh, he's not. He's actually quite progressive. He's a little older than me, not that much older than me. We're from, you know, a similar generation. We grew up at, at a time when homophobia was the norm. Uh, and he's, you know, very keen to say, look, you know, he's got no issue with there being gay characters. If you, you know, re he recognizes that representation is important and, you know, he's all for there being gay characters, but at the same time, why do you got to change stuff? Can you not leave Alan Scott alone? And, you know, if you want there to be a gay character, create a gay character. That's fine. But what you got to be changing stuff that's already established for. And I had some sympathy with that view. Uh, but like John Suntris, I have changed my view on that, particularly, actually, reading the current Alan Scott Green Lantern series. Because I have made a, a realisation, and we'll get to what that is later on, because we're going to switch characters now. Because Alan Scott is not the only character who was not originally established as being gay, uh, and has now come out with a non-heterosexual sexuality. Um, I can think of Bobby Drake, for example. Iceman from the X-Men. He now is canonically a gay man. And Tim Drake, the best of all the Robins, is now canonically bisexual. As is Jonathan Kent, Superman's little boy, who also goes by the name Superman, and he came out as a character a little while ago, and again, just as when Robin did, there were howls of, oh no, Superman's gay, that's not my Superman, oh, Robin's gay, that's not my Robin, and, you know, nonsense like that. The Robin thing even made it onto the Today programme on Radio 4 uh, in, a, in a piece where the Today programme presenter interviewed the writer of the story in which Tim Drake is first revealed to have a romantic interest in men and clearly demonstrated that she had not actually read not just the comic in question, but a comic for, well, I was going to say for some time, but actually forever. It would seem she had a very, very hard time getting her head around the concept of there being more than one character called Robin. So, you know, clearly not an easy fan because... I mean, there, there are so many Robins now, again, for reasons we haven't got time to go into here, but which we will probably talk about at some other time. Anyway, so lots of characters have come out, uh, even characters who are part of sort of the general consciousness, like Wonder Woman, have been presented 
with non-heteronormative sexuality. Uh, it is canonically the case now, uh, again, that Diana, Wonder Woman, is a bisexual woman. But all of this, all of this, has prompted comment. As I say, there's, there's, there's the howls of derision and objections from the anti-woke, won't somebody think of the children brigade, who frankly have misunderstood the whole thing. And we'll get to that. And then there are the the people who, and do you know what? I'll out myself here. People like me, who like John Suntris, who I've used as an example already, kind of said, look, that's great. That's fantastic. We are all for representation. Bring it on. But why do you got to make Tim Drake bisexual? Why can't you just leave him alone? Why do you got to make Alan Scott gay? Why do you got to make Bobby Drake gay? They weren't gay. And now they are. What's going on? That doesn't make. Nah, nah, just 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 that's just cheap. Create a new character. Tell an interesting story with that character. But, you know, don't be changing stuff. And. Partly what I want to do in this show is explain why I now accept that that attitude was wrong, because I think it's important. I'm also just just because at least some of you at this point are now shouting at the radio. Yes, I know I am a middle class, white, heterosexual, cisgendered, middle class man pontificating about LGBTQ issues, which do not in any way directly affect me. I, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, yes. I, I can do nothing about that. But in some ways, that's why I want you to follow my train of thought here. Okay? I have not actually spoken directly to anybody who would identify as being part of the LGBTQIA plus community in preparation for this episode on purpose. Okay? What you're getting here is my thinking based on what I've read and the comics that I've seen and the characters that I know. I am hoping that I will at some point be able to have this discussion with people from the LGBTQIA plus community as part of a show to explore these issues further. But for now, I, I wanted my to, to channel John Suntris knuckle-dragging Neanderthal opinions on view so that you can challenge them, if you like. Uh, you know, this is just me talking, is what I'm saying. OK, but follow my train of thought, because this is what I realised. And it was actually Tim Drake coming out as bisexual that triggered this, and um, which has led me down the, a similar train of thought with Alan Scott and Bobby Drake and Wonder Woman. And it's this. I don't know very many people who have been absolutely comfortable and confident with their sexuality, whatever that sexuality is, from birth. It's just, just not how things work, is it? Is it? I mean, I don't think I ever questioned whether I was straight or not, but equally, I didn't even know what that meant initially. And I, I suspect that if your sexuality is not heteronormative, if you are gay or bisexual or non-binary or trans, I suspect that's a much more complicated conversation in your head 
than the one that straight people have as they begin to experience those kinds of feelings and desires. Because I grew up in a world in the 1980s where as a teenage boy who was beginning to take an interest in girls, I was seeing myself a lot in the media. That's what I was presented with. I was presented with boys who liked girls and girls who liked boys. And yes, there was a lot of drama around how boys and girls would hook up with each other. Um, consider any Brat Pack movie, anything by John Hughes, just all of that stuff. OK, so I'm not saying that I, I had an easy time as a teenager like working out relationships and sex and all of that, because I didn't, because who does? But I was not struggling at least to understand what it was I was feeling, because I was seeing characters who were having exactly, exactly the same experience as I was having, depicted in movies and comics and TV shows all around me. Had I not been a heterosexual, cisgendered teenager, I wouldn't have been seeing that. I would have been seeing, I mean, this is the 80s, remember? I would have been seeing all kinds of allusions to gayness that would have been either completely negative, as in it was a terrible thing that you should be ashamed of, or a joke. Um, I point you at Mr. Humphreys, for example. Um, I'm free! Um, well, he wasn't really, was he? Um, and then there's trans issues. I, I, I can't think of any trans, properly trans characters from those days. A Corporal Klinger in MASH, who character was a man who wore a dress but only so that people would think he was insane and send him home from the war so not not really trans representation and even if it is it's not positive um there's michael kane in dress to kill um and i suppose norman bates in psycho uh in both cases cross-dressing was regarded as a clear sign not only of mental instability but also murderous intent i i can't think of a positive trans character from the 70s or 80s. I just can't. So, is it all that hard to believe that a character like Tim Drake wouldn't actually come to terms with non-heteronormative feelings until he was in his early 20s, which is what's happened? And no, that's not hard to believe at all. Consider Tim Drake. Tim Drake was introduced into comics in the very late 80s. I think it was actually 1989. It might might even have just been 1990. I could look it up, but, you know, Google's your friend, and it doesn't matter. That time, he was presented as a very talented young man who had grown up having figured out that Batman was Bruce Wayne and Robin was Dick Grayson, and having modelled himself on Dick Grayson and Batman since he was quite a small child. They were his heroes. And so he taught himself acrobatics and martial arts and all that kind of stuff. And he arrived on Batman's doorstep, literally on Batman's doorstep, not long after the death of Jason Todd, the second Robin. 
And he basically says, look, you need a Robin, I volunteer. I know who you are. I know what's going on. I know what's happened. I figured it all out. I've been training and I'm telling you, you need a Robin. I'm it. Not long after that, he meets Stephanie Brown. Stephanie Brown was a sort of heroic character. She became very much a Robin character, if you like. She was much more associated with Robin than she was with Batman. She was the daughter of a low-rent supervillain called... Um, oh, what was he? Was he the trickster or the trapster? I can't remember. He wasn't important. Oh, Cluemaster. Cluemaster. He was a, he was a low-rent rid- riddler. That's what he was. And she became the spoiler in order to spoil her dad's crimes. And it was in her spoiler identity that she first met Tim Drake, who was in his Robin identity. And for a while, for a long while, for a, I mean, for a while in comics time and for about 25, nearly 30 years in actual time, Tim Drake and Stephanie Brown were boyfriend, girlfriend. Now, recently, and I, I genuinely don't know whether it was just a thing they did or whether it was in preparation for the great coming out. But recently, Steph and Tim broke up in the way that those teenage relationships do break up. You know, I, I know a lot of people who had quite intense teenage relationships with their, not usually their first boyfriend or girlfriend, but, you know, and those relationships lasted into the 20s. But then as the two people grew up, they grew apart. They wanted different things. And, you know, the relationship didn't work and they moved on. And in many cases, as with Tim and Steph, they've actually stayed friends. They're just not boyfriend, girlfriend anymore. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. That's just just the way people develop, let alone characters. So I was sad when Tim and Steph broke up because I invest far too much emotionally in all these comic characters. But it made sense to me. It seemed reasonable. And then there were stories where, and one in particular, where Tim met a person, a person who happened to be male. And they had a clear connection. And the story that introduces this new character ends up with Tim talking to this new character and essentially kind of saying, I I think I'd like to go on a date. And again, that that seems real to me because Tim and Steph had been together for a long time and Tim was quite committed to Steph. And so he wouldn't have had any reason to look outside of that relationship particularly. So he wasn't looking at boys and he wasn't looking at girls. He wasn't looking at anyone except Steph. And then when Steph is no longer on the scene, of course, that's when he starts to think about feelings he may have had and attractions he might have felt that he dismissed along with any other attractions because he was into Steph. And so does it does it make sense that a bisexual man might have the penny drop in those circumstances and realise, oh, hang on, I'm experiencing those feelings now for this guy? 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I actually have no problem with Tim being bisexual. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, I, I have similar feelings about John Kent. If I have a problem with it at all, it's that the announcement of John Kent's sexuality and the announcement of Tim Drake's sexuality came very close together. And it just just from a throwing red meat to the homophobes kind of vibe, um, I, I don't think I, it's the way I would have handled it. But that's a, a minor thing. Do I care? No, I don't, actually. Um, do I think it's good that there is that kind of representation? Yes, I do. That's established. So, yeah, right, whatever. I would have done it differently, but I ain't in charge. So that's fine. The three other characters I mentioned in this context, though, Alan Scott, Bobby Drake and Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, might consider are a different case because they've been around a lot longer. They're much more established. Um, Alan Scott, canonically, has been married twice, for example. So now he's gay? What? Okay. I hear you, but just roll with me a little. Okay. The same with Bobby Drake, actually, although I actually don't think Bobby Drake has been handled as well. Uh, we may not come back to Bobby Drake because everything I would say about Bobby Drake, I'm about to say about Alan Scott. And honestly, DC did it better. So anyway, roll with me. Alan Scott was an adult in the 1940s. Now, I've already mentioned that the 80s were a very different time. I am old. I'm not old enough that I was around in the 40s. But I am aware of culture in the 40s. It was hard to be an out gay man in the 1940s. There were a lot of gay men who knew perfectly well who they were and what life they wanted. And they also knew perfectly well that they couldn't have that life because there was no way for them to do it then. There were lots of gay men who got married to women and had families because that's what you did. There were lots of gay women who did exactly the same thing um, because that's what you did. And often they didn't have even the language to articulate to themselves what they were feeling. Many of them thought that everyone thought like they did, felt like they did, and that kind of everyone was going along with, you know, the thing that you did because it was the thing that you did. You, you can read lots of biographies and autobiographies and stuff that, that cover this ground. So, I think we can safely accept that it's not unreasonable to present Alan Scott or anyone, any character, really, as somebody who was a closeted gay man in the 1940s, but who in later life comes to terms with who and what they are and how they feel about things. That that doesn't seem very far-fetched to me at all. Bearing in mind this is a guy who gets his powers from a magic ring and can fly and stuff, it's a lot less far-fetched than the kind of the core things about the character. So actually, I 
I'm realising that I don't have the objection to that that I thought I had. I mean, could they have created a character who had been a closeted gay man in his in, in the 1940s and who now, as a much older man, was figuring it out? Yeah, they could. They could have done that. But it wouldn't have had the same impact, would it? If you want to tell that story, isn't it better to tell that story using a character that people are already familiar with and already care about? Because, yes, we want people to be invested in the character and we want it to be a shock because if an older person that you've known all your life or thought you did suddenly reveals something so immense about themselves that perhaps they are only just coming to terms with themselves that they're only just beginning to understand about themselves if that happened to you in real life and it does happen to people in real life that friends or relatives have these revelations to make you will be shocked it will be a, a blindsiding thing so of course it makes sense to use a character that people care about Alan, that, and that canonically was around in the 1940s it, that makes sense if you want to tell that story and it's a good story to tell if it's told well. What I can tell you is that that story is being told well in the current Alan Scott Green Lantern series. At least from my position of ignorance, it feels to me like it's being told well. I, I, I'm happy to stand corrected by anyone who's coming at it from a different angle. So info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Get in touch if you have thoughts on this matter. Because what they're exploring in the current Alan Scott Green Lantern story is his relationship with his arch nemesis, the Red Lantern. Now, the Red Lantern is kind of the opposite of the Green Lanterns. In the old comics, the Red Lantern was essentially the Soviet version of the Green Lantern. Um, in the modern comics, the Red Lantern Corps is... Again, kind of an, an opposite version of the Green Lantern Corps. But what they're doing with the the current Alan Scott story is exploring the emotional bond, the emotional relationship, the attraction that Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, feels for his enemy, the, the Red Lantern. And again... Based on the, the established backstory of the character, that is a fascinating exploration. Both of the canonical wives of Alan Scott were, to some degree or other, regarded as villains. And so, you know, he's got a track record, this guy, of getting romantically involved with his adversaries. So that he would feel this intense attraction to the Red Lantern makes kind of sense. It's, it's clearly what this guy's into. And telling that story in a superhero context where Alan Scott already has a secret identity, you know, he's Green Lantern. He's also Alan Scott. And, you know, the people who know Alan Scott must not know he's Green Lantern. Well, come on, if you're looking for an allegory of, of having a secret side to yourself that you can't reveal, I, I, it's right there. 
of course you can you can do that yeah and have that secret identity thing as an allegory for being a closeted gay man it's all there and i i'm actually really enjoying this exploration it's making me think about a lot of the assumptions that as a man of my age and background i've grown up with and I like having my assumptions channel challenged. I, I think we should do that. I think it's a good thing. So I'm all up for that. Now, what has also caused some controversy is the, and I'm, I'm actually genuinely using heavy air quotes here, the revelation that Wonder Woman is bisexual. Because um, honestly, of all the sexuality reveals that shouldn't have been a surprise this this is the one that should not have been a surprise okay if i'm just going to put my my 21st century cosmopolitan progressive head on wonder woman canonically from the very beginning is from a culture that has no men in it unless you are going to think that women are not interested in sex at all. Do the maths, folks. Do the maths. I think the young people, actually, the young people wouldn't say that. Young people, when I was a young person, would have said that. Just, just really? Come on. All of that stuff might not have been in the text, but it was surely in the subtext. That's just being sort of modern and a little bit juvenile about it. Now let's look more in depth at the character and specifically at what the, the people who created the character might have intended. The people behind the creation of Wonder Woman are significantly more interesting in this context than the people behind the creation of any of the other characters I've spoken of. At the point they've made a movie about it, uh, which I haven't seen, uh, but which I will get round to seeing at some point. Uh, apparently it's very good. Uh, I haven't seen it again, so I don't know. But what am I talking about? Well, people behind the creation of Wonder Woman would probably still be regarded as a little bit scandalous today. So that they were living the life they lived in the 1940s. It's, it's almost laughable to assume that they intended Wonder Woman to be a straight character. Let me explain. The person who is usually credited with the creation of Wonder Woman is a guy called William Moulton Marston, who wrote under the pen name of Charles Moulton, um, alongside the artist Harry G. Peter. Uh, she was created in 1941 for DC Comics. Now, I'm just going to quote you from Wikipedia here, um, which states that Marston's wife, Elizabeth, and their life partner, Olive Byrne, are credited as being his inspiration for the character's appearance. And let's just pause. Marston's wife and their life partner. In modern parlance, William Milton Marston was part of a thruple. There were three people in that relationship, and they were all very happy about it. There was William Milton Marston, his wife Elizabeth Milton Marston, and Olive Byrne, who legally 
was not connected to them in any way and who was introduced to people as a, a, a widowed friend who was staying with them. Now, I hope you can hear again, hear the air quotes, because whenever there are two women who are living together in a historical context, they are almost always described as friends. And honestly, I suspect very often that was not their relationship. Certainly in the case of Elizabeth and Olive, something very deep and profound was definitely going on. I cannot say that they were physically or romantically interested in each other. I cannot say that for sure. I can say that both of them were in physical relationships with Marston, and I can tell you that because they both had children by him. I can hear what some of you are thinking so far, so sordid, but not dealing here with a philandering man and a wronged wife and a mistress. All three of these people were in a relationship with each other. And we know that because Olive Byrne lived with the Marstons and the two women continued to live together after Marston died. And they raised the children they had with Marston together. Now, that that's not the actions of uh, a, a born wife and her rival. That's just uh, that's not that. So clearly there was a relationship between those three people. And so I think labeling them as a thruple, although clearly I don't think that's a word they'd have recognized, but labeling them that I think is reasonable. It unreasonable to imagine that Elizabeth and Olive were involved with each other as well as with William Milton Marston. Yes, I think that is reasonable. I, I, I kind of don't quite understand how that relationship would have worked if they weren't, particularly because they stayed together after he was no longer there. I mean, it, is it possible that it was uh, uh, essentially a heterosexual polygamous relationship and that the two women had their rooms and Marston would divide his time between the two? Yeah, that's possible. It just it just doesn't seem likely. And although not much was made of it in the 1940s, 50s and 60s and, and even 70s and 80s, I, I think for, for reasons that are probably obvious to do with the attitude of the time and all that kind of stuff, I think that gay subtext was always there in Wonder Woman. And so when Wonder Woman says things like, I don't I'm not currently looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, I don't think that should be shocking to anyone who knows the character. Basically, so, am I OK with these kind of, of changes to characters? Yes. Yes, I am. Actually, after th after some thought, because you know, I, I'm not going to lie. My, my instinct was they're doing what now? After some thought. I can see why it makes sense to tell stories about the characters in this way, to develop those characters in that way. I think it works. And I do think representation matters. And I do think it's important to explore these ideas in fiction. 
Which brings me to the final bit of this little monologue, which is... But do they have to do this at all? Why do they have to bring sex into everything? Which is a comment that I hear. And, again, yeah. Uh, do they? And, um, well, no, they don't. But they do, don't they? I mean, how many times have you seen heteronormative relationships in popular culture? Batman with Selina Kyle and Silver St. Cloud and all the many other women that Bruce Wayne has been involved with. Um, Spider-Man and famously Mary Jane, but also uh, Felicia Hardy, the black cat and Gwen Stacy, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, Tim Drake and Stephanie Brown. The characters are always getting into romantic relationships with each other. And it's, a you know, a, there are good stories to be had in those relationships and nobody ever objects to sexuality being brought into these stories as long as that sexuality is heterosexual so when it's superman and lois lane nobody raises an eyebrow or so much as thinks twice about it but when it's superman and his boyfriend jay nakamura who is the boyfriend of jonathan kent then suddenly Everybody loses their minds. And I'm sorry, but if if it's okay for Clark Kent Superman to have Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, then it must surely, in a world where same-sex attraction exists, it must surely be equally okay to have Superman, Jonathan Kent, and his boyfriend, Jay Nakamura. I, I, and yes... I do know the objection that the people who object to this kind of thing ultimately make, which is, I don't want to have to explain all this gay stuff to my children. And all I can say to those, well, there are two things I need to say to those people, which the first is, why not? And the second is, sweetheart, don't worry about it. You don't have to. Because, come on, we no longer live in the 1950s. If you have children that you might need to explain this heavy air quote, gay stuff too, then those children have been to school and they will have friends who have two dads or two mums. They just will. And so they already know about it. That's not what this is about. There is, as far as I'm aware, no gay agenda. Well, more glitter, possibly. But apart from that, you know, this is not a concerted effort to shove ideas in people's faces. This is just telling stories that reflect the world that people live in. And that's what art is supposed to do. Yeah. Sometimes change is surprising. Sometimes it's even shocking. But change is also realistic. Discovering things about people we thought we knew well that we didn't previously know. That's life. Of course, our stories should reflect that. Is there any reason why comics shouldn't? None that I can think of. I mean, I want graphic depictions of sexuality actually in action, as it were, in the pages of Green Lantern or Batman or, you know, sort of main mainstream 
adventure comics. No, no, I don't, because that's not what those comics are about. Should that kind of thing not be in comics at all? No. Uh, there's, you know, anything that's, that can be done in, in any medium can be done in comics. There are comics which are very graphic about sex and sexuality, uh, which are great. Uh, I would point you at, um, well, if you're an adult, I would point you at Safe Sex. Um, I would point you at Sunstone uh, for examples of sex and sexuality and non-heteronormative sex and sexuality being depicted in quite graphic but not gratuitous ways. Um, that's what those stories are about. Do I want to see that in Greenland? About? No, and you're not going to. But is it okay for a male character to have a boyfriend? Yes. Yes, in any story. Is it okay for a female character to have a girlfriend? Of course it is. That's realistic. That's, that's how things are. The only caveat to any of that is, is the story good? If it is, fine. The only time I have a problem with a character's sexuality being used in the story is if it's used in a way that's boring or gratuitous. And I've got to tell you that in Robin and Alan Scott Green Lantern and Wonder Woman, it isn't boring or gratuitous. And although I have a problem with the treatment of Bobby Drake, again, it's not because the story was gratuitous. It's because of the arbitrary way in which the character has been treated later. Um, the Bobby Drake story, we've got time, so we will get into the Bobby Drake story. The Bobby Drake story was that the X-Men were brought forward in time. So the young X-Men from the 1960s were brought forward in time, still young, but now in the, I think it was the 2010s they did this story. And for a while, that's who the X-Men were. They were people who'd been brought forward in time. I, I don't read the X-Men because it confuses the heck out of me. But that's basically what was going on. And part of that storyline was... A young Bobby Drake realising now that he's in a world where it's OK to be openly gay, that that's what he was. And there were some good stories written about this character who was a teenager from the 60s, now in a world that's ex ex accepting of his sexuality, exploring that and, you know, experimenting with dating sites and all of that kind of stuff. Um, while the old Bobby Drake, who hadn't had that experience, was kind of a little bit creeped out by the whole thing and, you know, not actually all that happy about what his younger self was doing because he hadn't come to terms with it and wasn't and, and and it was an interesting perspective, actually. It was, but then they ended that storyline, and that storyline ended with the young X Men from the past being sent back to the past that they had come from. Now, what they could have done with that was use that to explore. Well, what is Bobby Drake going to do now? Because he's realised this thing about his sexuality. And now he's being sent back to a place 
that he will not be able to express that sexuality in the same way without inviting attack at the very least. There were some good stories to be told there, I think, uh, but they weren't told. And what actually happened with Bobby Drake was that there was a, an, I think it might have been just a two panel conversation. So just a couple of word balloons in which he expressed some concern about that and was basically told, oh, just go back into the closet again. It'll be fine, which I'm not convinced was a satisfactory way to round that out, I think is the best I can say there. Uh, it was certainly uh, a, a, a an element of the story that was very heavily criticised at the time. Where does that get us? Where are we in this discussion now? Um, I think, basically, my position is that, of course, it is a good thing that there are characters from all communities in comics and in fiction generally. Um, there should be gay and lesbian and bisexual and trans characters in the stories that we consume. There should be. Because stories must reflect life and people exist. Is that something that needs to be mentioned all the time? No, of course it isn't. I can't remember the last time I told somebody I was straight. I mean, actually I can because it was during this show. But you know what I mean. I don't go around talking about my straightness all the time. My gay friends do not go around talking about their gayness all the time. But it does sometimes come up. And when it comes up, it comes up. And so do characters who happen to be gay need to be talking about being gay in every story there are? No, of course they don't. As the character of Cosima once remarked in Orphan Black, my sexuality is the least interesting thing about me. It's the least interesting thing about most characters. There ain't nobody who's buying Batman just because Batman's straight. But sexuality whatever that sexuality is is an aspect of most people and sometimes that aspect of themselves will be rele relevant to the story being told and at those times and there are fascinating stories to be told about characters in relation to that i mean to go back to alan scott the green lantern now we can look back at all those old green lantern stories and all the old relationships that he's had Romantic and non-romantic. I think, who knew? Which of the other members of the Justice Society, if any, knew Alan Scott's secret? There are stories to be told about that, about how they helped him keep that secret, or about how they might have agonised about their own prejudices in relation to that. That There are great stories to be told there. I think, ultimately, that's why I wanted to ponder these issues, at the start-ish of LGBTQ History Month, because one of the things that using established characters like Alan Scott in this way helps underline is that there is LGBTQ history, that this isn't a fad that people have made up. It's not some new thing the kids are doing. It's always been part of society. There have always been gay men. There have always been gay women. There have always been bisexual people. There have always been trans and non-binary people. We just didn't acknowledge it as a society all the time. And we were not always great about it as a society all the time. But it's always been true. And so 
with hindsight, I am pleased to see these stories. I wasn't always, as I've said, but I think I've come to understand not just that they're important in terms of representation and in presenting the issue to people, but also there is a wealth of great storytelling to be had here and one which I look forward to exploring further as these characters and others mature and grow and develop. I think that these issues and these ideas are things that are uniquely suited to the kind of long-term serial format that comics are so associated with. Because like real people, you come to be genuinely invested in the lives of characters like Batman and Nightwing and Green Lantern, because we read about them for so long. Certainly, I'm more than happy to acknowledge that the various members of the Bat family are real people to me. I have known Dick Grayson my entire adult life. I have known Tim Drake for as long as Tim Drake has existed. I watched Tim Drake grow up. And so now this revelation about him, it's like finding something out about a nephew that I had. Felt that real and it made me properly think. And isn't that what good fiction is supposed to do? I think so. So probably time to move on. Because we are talking about LGBTQ History Month, maybe it's worth mentioning, just mentioning, because we haven't actually mentioned it yet, that there was quite a lot of moral panic around the way comics in particular have portrayed sex and sexuality over time. In the 1950s, for example, there is a reason that DC Comics provided Alfred with a co-worker. It was felt that three generations of men, that's Alfred, Bruce and Dick, living together in a house, that was suspicious and suspect. And so they introduced a housekeeper who worked with Alfred so that there was a woman around. And that is when Bruce Wayne suddenly became this playboy figure who was forever being seen with women. That's just one example of paranoia, really, that, you know, oh, God, people might think there's, oh, that that kind of attitude in the 1950s and 60s and 70s really didn't start breaking down until the 80s. Anyone who lived through the 80s will tell you that was not necessarily the um, the least homophobic time that ever happened. So we could, if we had more time, explore the history of the presentation of sexuality in comics over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Except I don't know nearly enough about it, if I'm honest. And it would take more time than I've got to research it. So this might actually be something we cover in LGBTQ History Month next year. If you are feeling like you wish to exercise your Google skills, or the search engines are available, I will just name drop Dr. Frederick Wortham, who is still 70 years after he published his book, Seduction of the Innocent, a bit of a hate figure around these parts. 
I'll put some links to him in the show notes as well. Just just really because Wortham's attitudes towards comics and popular entertainment in general, really, do kind of sum up the way a certain part of American public opinion was looking at popular culture in the 1950s and 60s in particular might actually underline the need to go back and put some historical representation into the canon. Essentially, what I'm saying is this is a much bigger subject than I thought it was when I started writing the script, which, incidentally, I've finished. I'm ad-libbing now. I don't know whether you can tell. It is something that I do want to know more about because it, it strikes me that the people who make comics have always been... A pretty progressive crowd, really. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, Chuck Dixon, Steve Ditko. You know, there, there are people who are more socially conservative, more on the right of things. But generally speaking, comics are a pretty liberal place. They always have been. And that suggests that if you look at the comics of the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, there's probably quite a lot of queer-coded stuff in there that maybe the, the majority of people even didn't pick up on, but I bet it's there. And do you know what? I think that might be hugely fun to explore. But yeah, I will probably come back to this for LGBTQ History Month next year. Now, though, we are almost, almost out of time. So... We will wrap things up there. Just remember, we will be back next week with, um, well, I think we might have to get back into tech next week. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening with SpaceX and Tesla and Musk and AI and Altman and all, all of that stuff is going on. And I, I think I kind of need to address it a little bit. So probably that next week, unless, of course, I change my mind. Something might happen that I just have to talk about. But for now, all that remains is for me to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising Media production and that show notes can be found at www.destinationvenus.co.uk uh, Just click on the blog section on the homepage and uh, look for the show notes for this week's episode, which is called Love and the Green Lantern, where you will find links to other information and people who know what they're talking about. Uh, incidentally, speaking of people who know what they're talking about, I, I recommended uh, Word Balloon with John Suntris. Uh, he has a fantastic recent interview with the current writer of Alan Scott, Green Lantern, uh, Tim Sheridan, which I wholeheartedly recommend. Uh, so there are links to that in the show notes, but you could just search for Word Balloon in your favourite podcatching app, because if you like comics or want to know anything about comics, you should be listening to John. You really, really, really should. He's referred to himself as a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, but in fact, he's one of the most insightful and intelligent commentators and best interviewers of comics people that's talking about comics anywhere that I can think of. So go and check him out. OK, that really is it for us. We will see you next week. But until we do, you know what I'm going to say by now. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else. Stay safe. Stay sane. And above 
all else, stay geeky. We'll see you soon. Bye.